and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 5, Episode 3. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based in Nashville, Tennessee. We're thrilled to have a fantastic panel for a really interesting set of stories today. And I'm going to introduce all three of them, yield the floor to them, let them introduce themselves. Trish Scanlon, how are you? I'm very good, Bradley. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you for being here. So take a moment, tell us who you are, tell us uh, who you're with, tell us what you do. Okay, um, my name is Patricia Scanlon. I'm the founder and CEO of Soapbox Labs. So we are Voice Tech for Kids. Uh, we have built our own proprietary technology, built from the ground up over the last seven years, uh, specifically for children. Uh, for children's voices, uh, behaviors, and language that, that vary wildly from adults, as you can imagine, and a lot of people would have experienced. So ad systems have been built for adults, modeled for adults' voices and behaviors and language don't tend to work very well for kids. So that's why we have brought our product to market and spent considerable amount of time doing that. And what we do is license our technology to clients um, who build the end user product for children, right? So that's across education, literacy and language learning, um, as well as in entertainment, toys, robotics. Um, so my own background, I'm an engineer actually. I'm, I have a PhD in speech recognition and I've been in the area of AI and speech recognition for over 20 years now. Um, and that's it, I'm looking forward to taking part, thank you. Thank you for being here, we appreciate you. Next up is Julia Liberty of AI Data Innovations. Julia, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So take a minute. Tell sure. us who you are. Tell us who you're with. Tell us what you do. All right. Um, Julia Liberty, I work with AI Data Innovations. Um, we're actually on the data providing side. So our company, we've been in the data space for about 10 years, um, and we focus on providing and collecting data for AI. We um, highly focus on multi-language, multi-market models, um, a lot of security work that we're doing, especially with um, sensitive data. And since uh, security and data regulations are becoming stricter, um, I have a background in linguistics and part of the business development plan and um, have been with the company for about two years, worked for a different AI company in Germany before that. Excellent. Thank you for being here. Next up is Dr. Alvelda. Dr. Say, Phil or Philip? Um, Philip is fine, yeah. Thank you for being here. Take a minute, tell us who you are, tell us who you're with, tell us what you do. Got it. My name is uh, Philip Alvelda. I'm the CEO of a company called Brainworks, uh, where we took uh, technology that came out of uh, the DARPA brain machine interface world. Uh, to translate some of the new discoveries in neuroscience into more capable AI systems. Uh, and our first uh, series of products is actually uh, in the health tech sector. Uh, it was kind of a happy accident uh, that we were in a, 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 a good position to contribute to the COVID efforts uh, in systems that will do uh, you know, uh, vital sign analysis uh, and direct measurement through cell phone cameras uh, using kind of the rush of blood across your face. Uh, and now we're in the process of deploying uh, systems and services and testing uh, software and management for schools. Um, I'm one of the old guys in, in AI. I've been in it since uh, about, uh, oh, I wanna say 1987, uh, when we were working at uh, NASA to, to build um, computers that worked more like human brains in kind of the second renaissance of neural networks. I then did my PhD at MIT in the artificial intelligence lab. Uh, and then, uh, you know, began building companies in Silicon Valley and about five years ago went to DARPA to help create the brain machine interface industry. Uh, and that's, of course, what led to BrainWorks. So great, great to be here and uh, talk about something that I think is uh, super important and, and near and dear to my heart. Thank you very much for being here as well. Appreciate all three of y'all. Um, with that, we'll get to the news. So story number one from Mac Rumors, Apple acquires AI startup Vilinx, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that completely wrong, to improve Siri. So <clears throat> this is um, this is one of two stories that we're starting with with Apple. So this has to be, I don't think it's a This Week in Voice first. I think we had two Apple stories really early on back in season one one day. Um, 
but it's it's been a while. Um, so Apple, uh, thanks for doing enough to where we can have two stories on you now uh, in one particular week. Uh, Philip, I'm going to start with you for this, um, and then I'll go to Trish, and then uh, go to Julia. Um, you know, we've seen Apple um, acquire its way, attempt to acquire its way back to where it feels like it ought to be um, with Siri, uh, with AI and machine learning. Um, what are your thoughts on this particular article, this acquisition, and what are your thoughts on Apple and Siri in general? And you're on mute, by the way. Much easier to be heard when that's uh, off. Um, I, I think the 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 real story, of course, is that uh, trying to find um, information that's accessible to computer systems that's buried in rich and complex data of all different types is really hard. And and I think the dream of Siri was always that you know all of this data and all of this knowledge and information would be at your fingertips or at the tip of your tongue in this case. Um, but, but it just proved hard and, and the early efforts were so constrained by, you know, just the, the simplicity of what you could access. Um, and so I think this acquisition points to like a desperate thirst uh, to make those services richer. Uh, and, you know, the, the fact that Apple is willing to spend to improve is, is I think a good testament to uh, the importance of this area. Yeah, agreed. And um, and Trish, I'm going to ask you the same thing. Um, you know, what particularly jumped out to you about this, uh, if anything, and just your overall thoughts uh, about Apple and Siri at this point in time? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Siri is obviously the first uh, voice tech one that kind of broke open the area and make, made us all, you know, aware of speech recognition in, in our personal devices. As well, and they continue to invest quite broadly. Arguably, some of the others have taken them over since then, like Google and Amazon, in terms of accuracy. But they're definitely not giving up that and investing quite deeply. I think this one's interesting because I think there's a lot to do with their investments in Apple TV and making their own content. And if you're going to go up against Netflix, you have to be able to make your content searchable. Um, so when you start creating vast amounts of content, um, you know being able to parse video, so that's the video processing as well as the audio speech processing, um, to be able to automatically create these metadata tags that are searchable. And then that can speak more broadly to, you know, their efforts in search in general, because more and more of the content online is video and audio. It's not text. It's not just text anymore. We're seeing that more and more. So being able to to you know, efficiently and accurately parse for good metadata tags will make your search and your recommendations more accurate and more personal, right? So make that experience better. So when they're serving you content into the future, they're serving you something that you're interested in. Um, so I think that's an interesting one. I think they continue to acquire small companies on a regular basis, a lot under the radar. Some we talk about, some we don't, some we don't know about. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a strategy of, of, of Apple uh, along with the other guys um, to continue to acquire, particularly in the space of AI, in order to augment um, their expertise and their knowledge. And you know, we see them branching out quite broadly in this and, and not a surprise. Um, it's a good one though, I like this. I think, it's a, I think it makes sense. Excellent. And uh, if there's somebody who knows about uh, data and tagging, it's uh, it's Julia. Julia, your your thoughts um, as you look at this, anything in particular stand out? Um, what do you think? Yeah, actually, I, I think it's um, also a very exciting move. I mean, Apple has acquired a lot of um, smaller startups in the past. And um, if that is the way and the road for them to improve, um, especially services like um, the Apple TV I think that's exciting. I mean, there's Netflix out there, as Trish already mentioned, and it's it's ginormous to go against uh, Netflix and that content. So if you find something that might help you improve that spectra of that, even if it's acquiring a new startup, I think that's a that's a good start. So why not improve something that you have with the help of a company that has an expertise in it and that focuses on exactly that? Um, I think that it's not necessarily just about the Apple TV, but also maybe to use on some of the applications that they have on the new iOS. Um, and in terms of the Siri, uh, Siri speech engine, I think um, a lot of people talk about that it's not very accurate, but over the last couple of um, years and months, actually it has, it has improved drastically. So 
from not having the accuracy level that some other speech engines maybe have. I think Siri has come a really long way and has improved drastically. <clears throat> that's what that's what people tell me. But, you know, every time I ask Siri to do something, um, you know, she kind of struggles. Um, no, she has uh, in all seriousness, obviously. And I say she I'm making somebody mad by doing that. You know, Siri has definitely improved. Um, and uh, and I also like that, um, you know, so I'm a big NFL fan. And, you know, I watch my Tennessee Titans every Sunday and every Sunday, like clockwork lately, I've been seeing um, Siri ads. So Apple's been advertising pretty heavily and they'll go on there and so they'll say, ask Siri for, uh, you know, standings or, or uh, the score of a particular game and just promoting it and all of it's good to see. So I completely agree. And, um, and this story ties directly into the next one. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, that headline here. Uh, this is from TechCrunch. Um, Apple search crawler activity could signal a Google competitor or a bid to make Siri a one-stop shop. And so um, this is just as much an Apple story as it is a Google story. And Trish, I'm gonna start with you and then Julia and then Philip. Um, so uh, Trish, your thoughts on the article, first of all, and then um, your, your thoughts on if Apple could actually compete um, how you would handicap an Apple versus Google search engine uh, battle of behemoths. Um, so this was really interesting because, I mean, it comes on the back of the recent uh, discoveries for most people, um, the billions that have been spent by Google to un underpin all of Apple's um, search across their platform. Um, and that was a recent enough, um, you know, story that went mainstream. So on the back of this, this is really interesting, right? So first of all, you've got Google paying Apple billions and a multi-year deal to be their search engine. Then you get this um, story saying, oh, now Apple is investing in their own crawler activity, could signal their intention to um, to compete. So my first reaction was, nah, that's not Apple's game. Apple sell devices. It's our ecosystem. It's different. You know, Google make money from search ads and it's their predominant revenue. Um, you know, Apple have never really gone after ads space. So I don't know about this. And then I was, but then I started reading a lot more about it and I got really interested in this. Um, and then it started, it changed for me because I think Google have the advantage here. They have a decade and a half or more on developing, um, you know, search, right? So it's two decades probably at this point. Like, um, you know, Apple have never been in that space, but Apple have the means to invest in whatever they want. Like, so, you know, they have the people, they have the experts and they have the means to do this. So when I started looking at more, it would seem that Apple's view tend to be always to lock people into their ecosystem, right? Like, you know, that's the value. That's why you can, you know, you don't get third party stuff on the, the iPhone, the Apple, the iPhone. That's what frustrates us a lot of the time. We're not talking about, uh, a skills ecosystem like Apple or, um, sorry, Amazon or Google. But maybe this push into search is is is, is warranted and makes sense because Apple really have been talking a lot about privacy and that really is their differentiator when it comes, and to voice. And a lot of people would argue some of Siri's disadvantages compared to their competitors is that they don't, they, they try and maintain the privacy. So any voice that leaves the, the device doesn't actually have personally identifiable information associated with it. So if that was the case, for privacy-minded people, staying inside the Apple ecosystem and having search associated with that, but they actually can, you can choose to let them have access to your email and your calendars and all this, and they can serve you more relevant search items rather than always having to go to Google and letting Google have access to that data. They don't need Google's money. They don't need the billions. They've got their own. You know, I don't, I actually think this is, this is, this is, Something initially I said no, but yeah, very possible. This is this is something we should pay attention to. Excellent. And Julian, I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, you know, your thoughts on the article. Do you agree with uh, Trish's enthusiasm about this uh, handicapping Apple versus Google in the search space? Yeah, actually, um, I do. I'm actually I'm also excited about it. I mean, when we talk about Apple, the ecosystem, if they really go into search, it's an ecosystem that they once again, can close just to Apple users. 
And there's a lot of privacy issues. Um, Google, I mean, obviously under investigation and the um, in a non-compete way, um, but also the idea of privacy, of not having all the ads on Google and Google getting all your data is definitely an exciting exciting thing. And users are more and more concerned about privacy. But the other thing was Apple also, because it is in the ecosystem and um, Apple and Siri have um, access to your emails, to your apps and can see everything. It's also a more personalized experience. So besides the privacy aspect, I think one of the things that is exciting, especially for Apple users, is that the experience of search is a lot more personalized. So the content, as Trish mentioned, is um, a lot more re relevant to the people. And I think that's an exciting step. And um, like she said, they, they don't need the money um, from Google, the billions that they get. What is really valuable to Google, on the other hand, is of course the Apple user, because the Apple user, there's a lot of insights that they get, but um, for Apple, it's not necessary. Plus it also pushes them in the direction that they can have personalized ad, push their own app store, push their own services um, if they use a search platform. And um, I don't think we should forget that Apple has a huge brand loyalty. So I think that even though Google um, obviously is a search engine that is preferred by, I think it's 95% of users or 90%, um, Apple has a big brand loyalty. So I think that there could also be a lot of users that think, hey, I have my Apple Watch, I have my iPhone, I have my iPad, my Mac, let's just close the ecosystem and I will use their search engine. Feel more comfortable with it because they have a longer history of product relationship with that as well. Completely agree. And uh, Philip, I'm gonna ask you the same thing. So, uh, Trish and Julia, enthusiastic about this, want to see if you agree. Um, anything else jump out at you from the piece? Uh, handicapping it, Apple versus Google in the search space. Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a great uh, conundrum. I think, um, you know, I'd observe that, that Apple is in kind of a delicate position right now because they are under uh, some scrutiny uh, about their trade practices around the App Store and their monopoly power. And, uh, and the type of moves that they've been kind of resisting for years and kind of grudgingly adopted over the last months uh, has been to allow you to change what is the default browser and email program on your phone. Uh, but I think that anyone that's been in the industry for some time knows that whatever that default is, is what 90% of people use. And, you know, a few of us power users might pick our favorite alternative. But as far as the market at large, the default still carries the day. So, so Apple has a tremendous amount of leverage in, you know, what are the defaults there and, and where does the search traffic go? Um, you know, I think you can pull out a couple of interesting tidbits if you kind of read between the lines of the announcement where, you know, clearly Google thinks that paying Apple billions of dollars will give them a handsome return on their investment in the search market. So it's clear that to Google that um, that search exclusivity uh, is worth what tens of billion, fourteen billion dollars versus their you know billion dollar level of investment. I mean, you know, I'm just applying their their PE of, of the day. Um, so so I think you know you could you could kind of infer from their profitability what what that likely relationship is. So so I think that that for Google, I understand why they would pay a billion to get you know that many billions in return in search revenues from ads. Not sure what Apple gets. And, and I think this is the kind of the root of the interesting question. Um, you know, they are clearly playing to, to maneuver against Google. You know, one of the things that they've toyed with in the last few releases of the browser has been uh, adding features to block ads. Okay, well, that would disintermediate the revenue that Google paid for. So it wouldn't surprise me if they're having a conversation that says, if you put the ad blocker in your browser, we're not going to pay you a billion dollars for ads that we don't get. Uh, so, so I think that that's probably part of the dynamic that's, that's behind the curtains, if you will. But um, uh, and then, you know, the ad blocker feature has kind of come and gone and it's been default on and now it's not. And so you, you can kind of see that playing out. Uh, in in kind of the the search bar wars, if you will, um, but you know I, I think uh, either Patricia or Julia made a good point earlier that uh, you know Apple has has staked its brand around the idea of not selling your information, of you know preserving and holding your privacy as paramount. Well, if that's the case, they can't monetize those ads the same way that Google is. And so I'm not really sure what they're getting out of. And, and I think that's the thing we need to figure out to really understand uh, 
what their motives are and, and why they might uh, might be driving in that direction. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's uh, all of that's really good commentary. And, I, you know, I I, um, I don't know. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I echo a little bit of, of what all three of you have, have said. I, I'm enthusiastic. I, I try to look for things to be enthusiastic about Apple about uh, now that I'm I'm pretty much out of the ecosystem. I've got my my Samsung phone here, but uh, I'm doing this on my MacBook Pro, uh, which they finally gave us a MacBook Pro with keys that works. So thank you for that. Um, but uh, you know, uh, the thing that sticks out of my mind is the 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 dalliance, Apple's dalliance with the self driving car. So we've been hearing about Apple in this autonomous car for. I mean, probably at least the last five years, you know, and Apple's developing a self-driving car and, and, oh, we're, they're close and, oh, and, uh, no, not that close. Oh, they're close again. Oh, no, they're not that close. So, and, you know, I, I just, um, and I look at the rest of Apple's ecosystem and I, I think, uh, where has the innovation been exactly and I, you know that's not who tim cook is and we knew that you know when steve jobs died uh, a lot died with him but uh you know i um i wonder how much of this is an apple identity crisis uh continuing to unfold where they really don't know what is next you know maybe services is next and we, yeah they generated some revenue but really that's just on the back of the iphone install base um, autonomous cars next. Well, maybe not searches next. Well, we'll see. So I don't know. Call me cautiously optimistic. Any, any closing thoughts on this? I think, I think Google have, have been, you know, the ones who have off, you know, more often than any of them, like started out efforts and shut them down unashamedly. And, and I think that's innovation, right? I think it's okay. Like the people may try things, they may not succeed. Google pay, you know, took many years to get going. A lot of false starts, Big bets, a lot of false starts. And I think in Apple's case, you know, um, I think they are constantly revising strategy just like everybody else. So um, will this actually come to fruition? I mean, this is nobody has been able to take on Google in terms of search, you know, to the same effect. So, you know, it, it's worth investing in. They, they stand to gain a lot by shooting at Google. Uh, will they pull it off? You know, I mean, you know, like you're saying with the self-driving cars, there's nothing assured here. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It's all about your strategy, the people you bring in or or move into the space, you know, your approach, your, you know, the, you know, the, the, the big thinking about it. Are you trying to solve a quick problem? Or are you going for the long, going in, in this for the long haul? Like, I mean, I think a lot of those decisions that big companies make are key and the people are, are key to their success. Right. So, I mean, there's nothing, nothing assured, no matter how much money you have. Well said. Yeah. And, and Bradley, you know, I, I would say, you know, you touched on a, a key point in my mind, which is that the, um, the iPhone and the, the cell phone penetration of the market has saturated. And so they cannot see the growth that they have over the last 10 years, again, through the hardware market on the phone side. And they don't have another product that's growing at anything like the rate that that grew. So, you know, they're in order to deliver growth, they've been forced to switch to, you know, being a service company. And you know they've they've done everything they can to increase the services uh, revenue and and the and you see things like the bundling effort with their new one service, um, and you know I, I think that there aren't too many industries that you could point to to say if we caught a meaningful piece of that industry would it move the needle for a trillion dollar company? Uh, search happens to be one of them, so I think it's a logical reach for them at this point to say, all right, we're services. What other services do we want to do? You know, there, there you go. Search is kind of uh, at the top of the list. Yeah. Well, well said. Julia, you, you closing thoughts and we'll move on. Sure. Uh, yeah, actually, I think uh, Philip made a very valid point there. But um, I think one thing that we have to take into consideration is the antitrust suit that is going on against Google. So right now is actually um, a perfect time. If someone wants to invest in search, this is the right time. And I mean, the deal between Google and um, Apple is part of that lawsuit or at least separately investigated. So it's a good, it's a good time because uh, that could be the point where um, Google might might be in a somewhat... Val, um, um, not valuable, in a somewhat um, vulnerable spot 
So this is actually a good a good opportunity for someone that wants to invest into search and that usually focuses on hardware rather than services. That's a good time for it. So wait, so are you suggesting there might be some collusion between Google <laughs> and Apple that uh, no, you know, just gave Tim Cook a call and said, hey, man, help me out with the uh, with the antitrust issues. Can you just start a search engine effort so we can point to that and not uh, and not suffer the slings and arrows of federal oppression? Nope, merely pointing out it's a good time right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent. Yeah, that's great commentary all the way around. And we will we will leave that right there. Um, and of course, uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on both of those. Story number three from Adobe, voice technology's role in our rapidly changing world. So this is an article written by Mark Webster, who started SaySpring, which was acquired by Adobe. Um, he's head of product for Adobe's voice efforts. And uh, Adobe just came out with a big new report, uh, which we'll be talking about tonight on This Week in Voice VIP, as well as some excerpts from the show um, uh, that we're recording right now. Um, there's a lot to this. And uh, Julie, I'm going to start with you, and then uh, Philip, and then Trish. Um, what, if anything in particular, jumped out to you from this report? Um, and, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. What, if anything, ju jumped out? Uh, what, what are your thoughts? Sure. Um, so, number one, obviously, very interesting um, article, especially looking at it from the data perspective, uh, because I think one of the issues was that users are complaining about accuracy levels, uh, which always plays into our corner. Accuracy is definitely a very important point. And, if voice is moving forward as fast as it is this year, um, there are a lot of holes that need to be filled. Um, for example, having biased speech engines or um, not really understanding what a specific person wants to communicate. Um, I think one of the things that I found very interesting is that the usage of voice compared to last year um, has increased rapidly, but the accuracy level actually um, did not meet, match up to what the report showed last year, 2019. So I think there's a big gap um, that can be shown between what users want and they are more open to using the voice experience, but that the technology or the, the data isn't catching up as fast as it should. So for example, let's take the um, banking. Usually um, there's a lot of casual uses for voice assistant um, and banking or booking a doctor's appointment has become something that people want to do now. Um, and because it's, it's a broad field and there's a lot that needs to be taken into consideration when building exactly that interface, I think there's a, there's a miss of um, having the right, the right language um, that the speech engine actually understands exactly what you're asking for. Because you, for example, might ask something differently than I would. So I think there's a lot of training that still needs to be done, but I agree it's really exciting. And I think um, voice is important and should move forward with a lot of other applications that are not just casual, like listening to music or getting directions. Um, and especially now looking at the COVID pandemic, a lot of people think it's a sanitary solution to use voice, which I agree, for example, opening an elevator or opening a door, it's a lot easier. And it just shows how important voice is and that voice is actually one of our well, in this case, sanitary and very important tools that we have and should make use of. Excellent. <clears throat> Philip, same question to you. Um, Wide-ranging report from Adobe. Um, the piece speaks to it. Uh, what jumped out at you? Well, you know, to me, you know, I think what jumped out at me most is what wasn't there. And, and I think that, you know, everyone on this call thinks, you know, and agrees that, that voice is a critical, you know, interaction mode for, for you know, getting information, uh, you know, you ask for something and you get it, get it back. It's important for controlling things, you know, opening a door, uh, commanding a navigation system. Um, but, but to me, those are still very, very simple, you know, parse a few words, figure an intent, execute a command, you know, it's a very simple chain of logic. And, and I think that, that when, when people write articles like these, they're, they're thinking in kind of a narrow mode just of what's familiar to them. You know, what can I expect a machine to do for me right now? 
And, and so, so I think from a first perspective, I, I like to look at things a little bit deeper. So thinking about voice technology, not just as word recognition and mapping a specific, you know, unitary control or, or response to it, but think of it as exposing deeper meaning. You know, the, the, the issue of voice recognition, that's only the first step in figuring out how to have a rich interaction with an artificial system. What can that embody? What does it mean? You know, does, does Siri understand some underlying meaning or truths about the universe when it answers your question? Absolutely not. It's almost like a lookup table and a command response. That's, that's kind of the state of the technology right now. So unless we can build some of the more human brain-like underpinnings that will embody meaning and representation, it's gonna be very hard to make these things more sophisticated to have you know, richer conversations that involve you know, different issues. I'll, I'll give you an example. So um, today, you know, AI and healthcare is very, very narrowly focused on individual unitary problems. Can you see in the x-ray evidence of COVID-19? Okay, can we look at a, a echocardiogram uh, trace and detect whether or not you have some heart involvement that would indicate the virus. So those are very narrow problems. But if you say, what should my treatment be and what can I afford? Now all of a sudden you've got ethics, economics, you know, all of these other issues in the decision-making process for your medical treatment that a doctor can represent and we take that for granted and the AI tools, they're not even in the picture right now. So, so our efforts to figure out, you know, what is the underlying machinery of cognition underneath the words and what they represent and what they mean, that to me is, is kind of the, 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 the brass ring that, that if anyone can reach a little closer to it, uh, we could make tremendous advances in, in what these voice systems are capable of. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a good mom and pop, uh, apple pie, AI greatness kind of statement. Um, but there's one other thing that I realized wasn't there. And um, in this COVID world, uh, it turns out that diagnosing the disease is really important. And it turns out that I think that beyond identifying the words themselves and trying to figure out, you know, what are you asking a machine to do? Um, we can actually determine a lot about your health in the, in how you speak, the tone of your voice, the spacing of your words, even your word choice and frequency. Uh, they all encode information about your health. Um, and the more you use these things, even things like how do you word your emails changes when you're sick. Uh, so these are the types of things that we think are very, very powerful indicators or biomarkers of health. Uh, and I think that uh, the voice um, technology mavens are, are only beginning to head in that direction. And there's a lot of fertile ground for exploration and, uh, and impact in, in that direction. Complete agreement. Excellent. Yeah. And, and Trish, I want to get your thoughts as well. So um, a lot of moving parts to this piece. Um, you've heard uh, Julia and Philip's uh, perspective on it. Your thoughts. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I, look, I agree with, uh, with Philip. I actually think, you know, what voice technology does today in the world is actually very brittle. You know, it's not that it can understand meaning and, and intent it can't we've a long way to go we've been at this for 50 years but like in terms of actually beyond understanding acoustically what was said uh, you know and a little bit of language model we've a massive amount of work to do on the process and understanding and, and, and you know intent and things like that to do but what I conversely when I look at this I think um voice technology today is so accurate and it can do so many things but it is doesn't exist almost outside of Alexa and Siri and Google. So if I don't have my phone or my smart assistant, or I'm in a place where, you know, in my car, where actually, you know, we don't see voice, even though it is, it's accurate enough to be. So the way I always look at it is that voice is the natural interface between humans. Um, we've only had to invent buttons and dials and keyboards and mouse swipe touch everything because voice wasn't accurate enough to be able to communicate with machines, right? Until very recently. Um, 
So a lot of what these users are looking for and what they're asking for, like let's say in terms of sanitary, you know, visit an event, wouldn't be great if it opened a door. That doesn't need to be Google or Siri or Alexa. It can be an independent voice command that just triggers and opens the door. Imagine what that would do for accessibility for, for people in wheelchairs or people who, you know, who, who don't have the same mobility. You know, what I'd like to see in a, you know, in a kind of in almost in a response to reading what the people want, and I totally agree with you guys as well though, that people are only going to answer what it's in the realm of thinking is possible. But we don't even see that yet. Like, you know, I mean, what I'd love to see is, you know, what we we often talk about with kids is that an interface technology is something that can allow a kid who's pre-literate doesn't have to read a button or a complex menu system, can actually use their voice to get to what they want. And wow, they can suddenly interact with technology in a very seamless way, in an invisible way. Because voice being the natural interface should be invisible. It should fall away, right? It shouldn't be this, hey, hey Siri, hey Alexa, whatever. It just should be something that we use instead of buttons and swipes and touches. And, and we're getting to a point where it's accurate enough and it can handle background noise and handle independent speakers that's never heard before, people with a heavy accent. And what we see a lot is inaccessibility, in education, in just allowing children to interface with a toy and have a conversation without a screen. There's so many things voice can do. And we, I, you know, I think a lot of times it's been great that voice assistants have broken open the market and allowed it to normalize, using your voice to normalize in society, as people are saying there that they're in that article that, you know, they, they feel kind of, you know, uh, comfortable or not comfortable depending on your age. But what we need to get to a point where people understand that voice technology has potential outside of an assistant. You know, I mean, this is an interface technology. And once we start thinking about it like that, so much more is possible. And, this, and you begin to see, oh, we're only at the tip of the iceberg here. You know, there's so much more, whether it's in health, whether it's in education, whether it's in toys, robotics, accessibility, there's so much more. And, and I like the idea of the potential. And I love the idea that people simply think it could help in, in a, a sanitary circumstance, but it can do so much more. Excellent. So, yeah, so y'all covered... I'll cover a lot of ground <laughs> with, with your, with your answers there. So Julie, you were talking about it, you know, ac there's a, some, some, there's a Delta between where the accuracy is and where it needs to be uh, that, uh, that needs to be shored up. You know, Philip, you were talking about the deficit between uh, where things are today, you know, meaning wise, a lack, you know, a lack of uh, <clears throat> um a need to continue to, to pursue um, systems that, that understand um, you as well as the world in a deeper way. And then Trish, you know, you, you uh, reflecting on the fact that uh, these assistants are all tied to mainstream ecosystems uh, and it would be nice to, to have broader surface area uh, to voice uh, than that. And that's, that's really interesting that all three of you would mention different things. I think that to me, looking at the piece, and I've seen the underlying report that it was based off of, uh, which I'm not sure I couldn't tell from the report uh, if they're making that report available or not. That's why I didn't email it out. Um, but uh, uh, I think what I take away from it is that, you know, we, um, you know, we've all lived through the initial like 2017, 2018 with Alexa and everybody asking in the media pontificating, what's the killer app? So what's the killer app? Because that's the only word I know because we just w went through apps for the last 10 years. So what's the killer app? And, um, and you hear these crickets chirping. <laughs> you don't hear an answer. You, you can call, you know, call out the question, but you don't get an answer. And, you know, I think what we have come to figure out is that, um, you know, for many situations, voice itself is the killer app for many different um, contexts of computing. Um, and then, you know, within different verticals, different industries, different sectors, um, such as healthcare, that's a perfect example. Um, there's, there's a totally different spectrum of ways to answer or even begin to start to answer what the killer app is. And uh, when I look at a report like what Adobe put together, I, I and I hear y'all's responses, it just there's this yearning for more, you know, across everybody working in this space. There's this yearning for more. We've had our first, 
it's like a like a baby you know it's like uh you know you have your first bite of some sort of food and you want and you want more you know it's like that's that's where we're at and we want more context and we want more meaning and we want more availability and we want more accuracy and all of that and so i'm encouraged when i read things like this i think that uh, the you know when we look back at 2020 uh we're going to see a year that was transformative and accelerating to everything that all of us are doing with voice and AI uh, opens up everybody's eyes, gets everybody, you know, I've seen it in many other areas of our business, people who were sitting on the fence, um, you know, fortune 1000 companies saying, yeah, you know, the voice conversational AI stuff is nice, but um, you know, it's down the roadmap a bit. We'll get to it when we get to it. You know, that's a pre COVID conversation. I heard that several times. I don't hear that anymore. I haven't heard that in a, in a long time. Um, and what I hear instead is it's investment, it's investing resources time and it's, it's uh, getting uh, into the ball game time. And so I think everything that y'all said, everything in the article reflects that any closing thoughts. Well, uh, my, my old advisor at uh, MIT, uh, Marvin Minsky, uh, was famously quoted as saying, uh, you know, no one's ever built a computer that understood what it was doing. <laughs> and then he, but what, what's not as widely published is that a moment later, he like turned to the rest of us in the room and said, but most of the time we don't either. <laughs> and, and so I think that, uh, you know, what I would take is a little bit of encouragement that, um, you know, we are building, um, you know, progressively larger portions of, you know, the human brain equivalent. Right. And as we add each little piece of the new, more capable brains, uh, they can do more complicated things. So, you know, every year now we're seeing, you know, more and more capability, more and more understanding. Uh, and there's a few developments that I think could uh, really accelerate that uh, with a few key technology leverage points that, uh, that I'm looking keenly at. But uh, I think it's a, it's a great time to be in the field. Uh, there's tremendous resources being poured behind it. Uh, the Apple acquisition and investments is clearly an indicator. They're not alone. It um, wouldn't surprise me if uh, of a number of uh, the larger companies uh, start to swoop up and, and purchase distressed AI companies in uh, you know that are that are otherwise oppressed by the pandemic. Um, but uh, you know, keep your eyes up. Good good time to be in the field. Uh, yeah, you must be reading my mind. I'm actually working on working on a piece about that very topic uh, now uh, because, yeah, I completely agree. I think we're one of the traits we've seen. I, I talk a bunch about a duopoly, how we're we're seeing a true duopoly between Amazon and Google, and one of the defining characteristics of a duopoly is increased marketing and and increased competitiveness. But another one is acquisitions. Um, so what I, I completely concur. Um, Julie and Trish, y'all good? You got any other anything else to, to throw in there? I think actually just to comment on what you were saying there about how things have changed. I mean, we've been at Voice Tech for Kids since 2013, and we spent a number of years educating the market, and but you know, on why it would be good in education, why would kids need it for toys and games. Since COVID and this this it, there has been it's it was happening anyway, which I think is interesting. Like you said, 2020 was a, a you know a game changer in people's acceptance, and then COVID happened, and it was kind of like a case of remote schooling. We need to be able to listen to kids reading and doing their language when they're at home. We need to be able to feedback to the kids, to the teachers when the kids are in the school or in their home, and that acceleration. I think that was happening. That acceptance that was happening anyway in the market around voice technology being important. COVID just gave it a kick. And, and, and we're really seeing an acceleration because a lot of people are sitting at home thinking and not flying around and sitting in meetings as well. So you've seen, I think, an awful lot of activity, a lot of reflection, a lot of people sitting at home, maybe using their voice technology systems. And, and I, I've seen a massive change. And I think you guys all have as well in people's thinking and where we're at. And and, and there's no going back, basically. You know, with it, we, we've pushed forward a lot quicker than we would have otherwise. Um, but, you know, 2021 is going to be really, really significant, I think. Complete agreement. Julia, Julia, anything else to throw in there? Yeah, I um, absolutely agree. Um, 2020 has definitely been a push for voice assistant or voice technology in general. And um, it's going to be really exciting to see what's going to happen in 2021. I think one of the things that I find very exciting about it is also that the acceptance of using voice technology 
it's a lot higher than it was before. I mean, voice technology has always been part of the ecosystem. Well, not always, but in the last couple of years, part of the ecosystem and uh, been integrated in more and more solutions and uh, more and more apps have been developed or um, services that integrate voice technology. But this year has definitely pushed it to a point where we didn't think we would be if COVID hadn't happened. I mean, we could probably all do without COVID, but in terms of pushing innovation and pushing um, voice technology forward, it's it's been a great year. Complete agreement. Yeah. So we'll we'll leave that right there, and we'll go to our last story, which is uh, so we always like to include. I really like to include stuff that's bizarre or off the wall. Uh, but I didn't I didn't see anything this particular week, so I, we look for a one off sort of thing uh, that's not necessarily related to. Uh, everything else, and uh, we found it. So from VoiceBot, and I want to read this, voice-activated museum, Planet Word, opens in D.C. So <laughs> I, I think this is cool. Um, you know, I think there's a few different ways to, to, to look at something like this. Um, Philip, I'm going to start with you and then uh, go to Trish, and then, Julie, I'll give you the last word. Um, Anything jump out to you about this? Uh, it's it's a bit of a one-off, uh, directly related, you know, indirectly related to what we're talking about. Your your thoughts on this museum? Well, I'll say that the Alvelda family is a sucker for a good museum, um, and I'm kind of bummed because we just moved from D.C. to uh, the San Francisco area, so uh, it's a long car ride to get to this one, and we're not flying just yet, so. Uh, <clears throat> Let me start there. <laughs> uh, I'd love to visit. Um, I think the idea is fascinating. You know, I've always been fascinated by the trends in linguistics. I mean, you hear stories about things like uh, the decline of people's vocabulary as an example. Um, you know, why is it that, uh, you know, the works of Shakespeare, you know, hold so many um, diff more different words, more unique words than, than uh, a typical work of fiction and certainly a tweet stream. <laughs> so we, we seem to be trending in directions of the loss of words and the loss of specificity uh, and the loss of, of deep and rich meaning or you know, maybe expressing it in different ways. Uh, but I think having a museum to explore that and, and maybe um, illuminate and recover some of that beauty is, uh, is time and energy well spent. Is that, is that true that Shakespearean works have a, a greater breadth of words and vocabulary than modern fiction? Uh, it, it uh, yeah, it does seem to be. And, and certainly if you look at the trends where um, the average vocabulary has been declining quite a lot in the recent years with uh, a shift from reading long form fiction and nonfiction to, you know, reading, you know, shorter online segments. Um, and then the predominance of um, press that's written purposefully at the fifth or sixth grade level to have broad appeal and broad uptake to drive ad revenue. You know, you see the, the number of words in use declining. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, and you can see, you can see the differences in, in national approaches. So, um, uh, if you, if you travel to London, for example, and, and just look at the, uh, the advertisements on the tube, uh, you know, they have like five syllable words in garden variety ads. You never see that here. Um, why? Because they're targeted at a different, at a different demographic. They've got classes and they're willing to market to the educated, you know, the educated class. So, um, I think, uh, you know, building people's vocabulary is a good thing. Um, would love to see that uh, kind of flourish. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Trish, uh, your thoughts on this museum and uh, anything jump out at you about uh, what VoiceBot had to say? Uh, yeah, I, I think this is quite an interesting take in that, you know, museums of old were very passive. You sat there and absorbed and, and then we've begun to get kind of museums that are interactive in terms of motion and maybe a little imaging. And, and this is really interesting because you are going to use your voice in a museum, like you're going to be expressive um, um, and, and it's able to take words and, and create conversations. And it's going to have people have virtual conversations, have people, you know, I think there was like, you know, soundproof rooms and all that, but that, that's, that's a very different thing, right? And there has been a push with, let's say, voice assistants and the likes with voice skills, so something that doesn't have a screen, uh, where I just think this isn't a nice jump and that there's a lot of visual interactions, but it's going to create um, a possibly more immersive experience being able to use your voice. And personally, I'm looking forward to the day when uh, VR and AOR starts to incorporate voice too, because then you're going to start having 
more real natural interactions and just like I was talking about before like voice is the natural interface it's how humans communicate but we also communicate visually right so you know it's certain amount is gesturing certain amount is visual but using your voice more and more in in interactive experiences are going to create more engaging experiences across the board um so I look forward to the day we see more of that I think this is a nice start and yeah I'd love to visit Excellent. And Julia, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, any, uh, any thoughts as you, as you look at what these folks are doing with this museum? Um, what do you think? Yeah, actually, um, I've never been to Washington, D.C., so um, that has to be moved up on the bucket list. That the, It sounds like a really interesting place to go, and I'm really excited, especially having a background in language. Um, I agree, actually, with both Trish and Philip, so I think it's very important to to teach a little bit more about a broad variety of vocabulary and also teach the language um, or the history of language. And um, one aspect that I find very fascinating about the museum is because you do use voice. And um, like, I think you talked about that in episode one also, um, AI for kids and making sure that children understand how to use AI and voice is definitely an important part of that. So I think this museum is not just teaching about language, about broader vocabulary, but also having an interactive and fun way to teach kids what you can all do with voice, how you can use it to learn something and not just learn about language, but also about how to use voice to, for example, activate the different, um, the different words um, about the history of English language. And the other aspect about it is that we're not just talking about the English language, but also about other languages, um, getting an understanding that there's a lot out there. There's a lot of languages that are rarely spoken still. Some of them are almost dying out. So I think that's also a fascinating aspect that there's just an approach to help people, children, adults, everyone understand that language is something very fascinating and it's different in, in every in every um, aspect and in every corner of the world. So I think it's uh, it combines a lot of teaching moments. Yeah, yes, it does. And that's a great place to, to, to leave it. Um, uh, great conversation. Uh, Trish, Julia, Philip, appreciate all of y'all uh, being generous with your time, being generous with your knowledge and your expertise, sharing them uh, with not just me, but the audience as well as part of this week in voice. Thank you for being part of the show. Thanks, guys. Yep, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks. For, for This Week in Voice, Season 5, Episode 3, thank you for listening, watching, if you're watching on YouTube. Until next time.